I'm Hal Stewart, BFBS presenter and football fan. BFBS, in partnership with Tickets for Troops, have been giving members of the armed forces community the chance to come together virtually to pose questions to some footballing legends. We've already welcomed Gary Lineker, Chris Kamara and Vinnie Jones. On this episode, you'll hear from Alan Shearer. Here's a taste of what you can expect. To captain your country, there's nothing that would top that. I mean, I won the Premier League, I won Golden Boots, Player of the Years, but there's nothing can can beat, I mean, captaining your country. It just sort of happened, and the more people took the piss out of me, excuse my language, then the more I, um, the more I thought, you know what, I'm just going to carry on doing it. He used to kick me, I used to kick him and cut eye and broken nose and cut lip stitches. But we always, at the end of it, we always used to uh, shake hands. He was a great captain, he was a brilliant leader. I had 10 unbelievable years at my club, scoring goals with a number nine shirt on at the Gallagher end, the terrace that I stood on, the team that I supported. I've got a statue outside the ground. I've got a foundation that supports profoundly disabled people. If I had the same decision to make again to go to Newcastle, I would make the same because it was, it was the best decision. Once upon a time, on the pitch. On the pitch. Welcome to a special virtual Q&A thanks to BFBS and Tickets for Troops. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome a former international footballer, manager and now a television pundit, widely regarded as one of the greatest strikers of his generation, a recent inductee, in fact the joint first, into the new Premier League Hall of Fame, the Premier League's record goalscorer, a former Football Writers Player of the Year, a PFA Player of the Year, Ballon d'Or and FIFA World Player of the Year nominee, and really one of the world's greatest ever footballers, Alan Shearer, CBE. Welcome, Alan. How are you? I'm very well. Carry on, Hal. I was quite enjoying <laughs> that introduction. <laughs> There's moments of peril, uh, moments of jeopardy, because... Your Wi-Fi, you said to me just off air before, you, you were concerned about. And just as I started broadcasting, I noticed there's a wasp in my studio. So we've both got our own <laughs> moments of real peril that could affect this entire broadcast. Good timing. It's all about timing. <laughs> it is. We'll see how we get on. Congratulations on being inducted into the Premier League Hall of Fame. Who should be next in the Hall of Fame and why is it Kelechi Iheanacho? <laughs> well, when you saw the list that was um, that was put out by the Premier League, there's an argument for every single one of them. I don't know what a, I've just lived a lucky life. I mean, I, I got paid to play football. I mean, how stupid is that? I would have played football anyway. I just happened to be half decent at putting the ball in the in the back of the net. So to see to be the first in there, must with alongside Thierry Henry, who was an unbelievable player, is. Um, it's very, very special. Uh, who would I who would I have in next? The next three? Steven Gerrard, um, Frank Lampard, and uh, probably Paul Scholes. Uh, I mean it was um, it was unbelievable. Uh, those those three. I mean, Lampard's record goal scorer was ridiculous. It was I've actually almost feel guilty calling him a midfielder because of his mm. goal scoring record. It was phenomenal. Probably those three, but there's an argument for every single one of them. Completely agree with those choices. Uh, let's talk about a few things to do with you. You're very well known for your uh, philanthropy and the fact you're giving up your time tonight for the armed forces. Thank you for that. Why are you such a supporter of our military and their families? 
how can't you be? I mean, it's uh, the work the men and women do. And also what their families have to uh, have to put up with. You can't imagine that uh, what their families have to have to go through it uh, at times. I think it's hugely important that um, that I try and give something back, whether that's doing this or whether it's my own foundation. Because um, as I said, I'll, I lived my dream. I got paid to play football, so I was extremely lucky. So I think it's hugely important that we, us footballers, ex-footballers, should try and give something back. I completely agree with that as well. It's going well so far, and, and no sign of the wasp. If we go back to the beginning, you were born in the Gosforth area of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, 13th of August, 1970. How important was football in your upbringing? Football was all I knew as soon as I could walk. My old man chucked a ball at my feet in the the tiny back garden we had, and, and that was it. I fell in love with football and I wanted to play it every minute of every day. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't want to go to school. And when I did go to school, I just wanted to play football outside. When I came home from school, I just wanted to play football. And then I got lucky. I got a chance. I got asked if I would go on a trial to Southampton as a 13 year old. I think it was a scout was watching me play for Newcastle boys on a Saturday morning. And, um, he went over to my parents and said to them, can I take your lad uh, down for a trial for Southampton and typical mum and dad style? They said, why are you asking us for? Go and ask him. So he did. And I did. I went down with, like the rest of the country. We all came together and I got offered schoolboy forms at 14 years of age and then got offered an apprenticeship. So I left home at 15 to go down like 300 miles down to uh, to Southampton. And then, of course, two years later, when I was 17, I made my debut and then the rest is... It's sort of history. That's when I yeah. That's when I got lucky. I think three hundred and twenty-three miles to be exact. <laughs> I mean, All right, for, okay, I'm twenty-three out <laughs> for a young lad. I mean, what do you remember? Professional debut that you were just talking about there for Southampton on the the twenty sixth of March, nineteen eighty eight. I think you came on as a sub. Am I right? Yeah, I came on as a sub. I think it was Chelsea away at Stamford Bridge was my uh, was my debut. But my full debut was the 9th of April, 1988, where I started for the first time against Arsenal and managed to score a hat-trick on my, uh, on my debut. And I think, someone please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm still the youngest player to score a top-flight hat-trick. And beaten, I beat Jimmy Greaves that day on the, uh, in 1988, and I think I'm still the youngest. So if I'm wrong, then whoever's out there, you can still, please pull me up on that. Well, even if Alan is wrong, don't pull him up on that tonight. Uh, <laughs> it's all about Alan. Uh, but how do you look back on that time at Southampton? It was a brilliant learning curve. I mean, it was it was pretty daunting because I, I left, as I said, at, at 15. So to leave school, leave home and travel 323 miles down the uh, down the motorway it was um, was tough. And I missed I missed it at times. But you know what? It sort of got me away from my pals. It got me away from the area that I might have got into things that that I shouldn't have, have shouldn't have. But that sort of helped me. In doing that, I had to grow up. I had to learn how to uh, how to live on my own. I was in digs as a 15-year-old kid. And it was, looking back, might not have been then is what I'm sounding at now, but it was it was probably the best thing I've ever done was make that decision and go down to Southampton, learn my trade, clean the toilets, clean the dressing rooms, clean the boots, do the old jobs like the old apprenticeships used to. Used to and um, it helped me grow up. Well, I remember you playing for England under-21s at the Toulon tournament, but tell me about the full cap during the 91-92 campaign off the back of that good form that we've been talking about for Southampton and scoring on your England debut against France. You weren't too bad on debuts. 
did all right on debuts, you know, even though I was probably pretty nervous. Um, mm. But yeah, the England debut is, I started the game, it was against France at Wembley and it was myself and David Hurst, which uh, we, we started up front together. I scored in the first half and then David came off at half time, and then Gary Lineker came on at half time, And then Gary scored the second goal uh, in the second half and we managed to beat the French 2-0 on my uh, on my debut and that was that was me then with uh, with England off and running it was a great way to start when I did score I just wanted more of it because that feeling of putting the England shirt on and scoring at Wembley Jesus it doesn't get any better than that and then I mean I always dreamt one day that I'd play for my uh, play for my country but I never ever one day thought that I'd go on to captain them so to, to captain your country there's nothing that would top that I mean I won the Premier League I won Golden Boots as you said, I won Player of the Years, but there's nothing can can beat. I mean, captain your country. As I said, that feeling walking out of Wembley with the armband on and listening to the national anthem. Wow, so special. I'm going to try and tie the questions that come in to what we're actually talking about as much chronologically as we can. And there's a perfect question that's come in from Colonel Anthony Phillips in Lark Hill, who says, Alan, what is your best memory of playing for your country? The best game, I think, that the best atmosphere ever played in was that 4-1 game against Holland in Euro 96. Mm. I mean, the atmosphere that night was uh, was electric. We didn't realise it because we were stuck in a hotel and we were watching the games on TV and we weren't quite grasping what was going on outside of our hotel. And then we got an afternoon off and Terry Venable said to us, you can sort of go out into the local town, Burnham. It, uh, it was we just thought wow the reaction we got when we walked around the small town was just phenomenal and then we could see the games building up and the crowds were getting bigger when we were travelling on the bus to Wembley there was thousands lying in the streets and then so we were thinking my god this is uh, this is pretty special but that night against Holland when I managed to score two and Teddy got the uh, got the other two wow that was that was the best atmosphere I had in England sure yeah yeah, and amazing memories for so many of us that just adored Euro 96 and had a, a yeah. huge impact on many formative years. Corporal Ed Groden, RAF Leeming, lifelong Blackburn Rovers fan. He says, Rovers fan here, Alan. What was your favourite goal at Blackburn? And also, do you remember playing pool in a pub in Oswald Whistle? probably pronounced that wrong uh with Mike Newell against three young lads. I was one of those young lads and I'm All pretty right. sure we won. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I didn't win, I don't remember it. So no, I don't. <laughs> nice one, Ed. <laughs> and if it was, if it, and if it was with Mike Newell, then we probably had a few bit, few many beers. So that's why I probably didn't remember it. My favourite goal at uh, at Blackburn, I don't know. I mean, the the last one, the one on the final day of the season at Anfield was was pretty special. Although it didn't uh, it didn't mean anything. The ones against Man United when we beat them in that uh, in the Championship winning season were were also uh, were pretty special. I remember. I remember every single goal. It's weird. I remember wow. them. Uh, I remember them all. I remember them. I remember smacking one in the off the crossbar against Queens Park Rangers at Ewood Park. I loved my four years at uh, at Blackburn. I mean, I said going to Southampton was a great decision, but also going to Blackburn was unbelievable because uh, when I went to meet Jack Walker and Kenny Daglish and Robert Cole, the chairman, um, and Ray Arford, bless him, who's no longer with us now, they sold me the dream. They said to me, Blackburn will win the Premier League. That's that's what they're in the business for, and that's one of the main reasons why I uh, why I went there. And I had four unbelievable years there. I loved it. I mean, it must have been a whirlwind time for you, 1992, that year, a big year. We've mentioned England already, that big move to Blackburn Rovers. Did you have any idea of how good that Rovers side was going to become in really what was a very short time? 
bearing in mind Blackburn only came up via mm. the playoffs penalty Mike Newell got a uh, penalty I think stuck a penalty away in the old second division to come back up to come up then to the Premier League which was just starting then so for a team that had just been promoted to then come in and within three years win the Premier League we perhaps could have and should have won it the year before when Man United won it but we showed our intentions and how serious we were so to win it within three years was an unbelievable achievement I mean I know I know Leicester won it and, and that was probably the greatest achievement in Premier League history Leicester doing what they did but for little old Blackburn to come in and take the might of Man United on and Liverpool on and beat them to the title within three years is, is pretty special also Absolutely and of course you had some wonderful strike partners and Chris Sutton the SAS at uh, Blackburn Rovers mm. you've all already mentioned for England ready steady Teddy Sheringham but uh, Nigel yeah. Cospieros from RAF Marham says what about these two for strike partners if you had to choose one Ian Wright or Gary Lineker <laughs> Do you know what? I'd end, I'd end up arguing with both of them as I probably did because with a, with us <laughs> all three of us being goal scorers, we'd try and nick each other's space. So I'd tell Wrighty to do one, and I'd push Lineker out on the wing. That's what I'd. That's what I'd. That's what I'd do. I had some great partnerships over the uh, over the years. You said uh, I mentioned Mike Newell, Chris Sutton. Teddy with England, Les Ferdinand. I had one season with Les at Newcastle. We got 49 goals between us. So, yeah, Craig Bellamy was brilliant for me also at Newcastle the last few years of my, my career. So I've been I've been lucky. And the best partnerships I always found are the ones that you don't have to work on. It just clicks. It just happens. All of those guys that we uh, we got on great together on a football pitch, which is, is what matters. How much of an influence has Kenny Dalgleish <coughs> been on your career, Alan? Kenny was amazing. Kenny's a brilliant bloke. I remember the first time I sat down in for, for talks with him. I mean, I, I I was a huge fan of his anyway because of his playing ability because he was he was one of the best. I mean, you speak to the uh, to to the fans at Anfield and they'll tell you how how good Kenny was. So to work to work with him, learn from him every single day. Yeah, he he helped me a lot and he improved me a lot. He gave me little tips here and there. I mean, who better to learn from than? Than the great Kenny Daglish, uh, and yeah, he was he was magnificent for me. Winning the Premier League with Blackburn Rovers with Kenny. If you had to pick one, is that a personal career highlight? Oh yeah, without a, without a doubt. I mean, there's been there's been a few. As I said, I've been lucky, but for me to I mean, bearing in mind that's the only Premier League title that I've won, so um, it was very special. It was special because. It was Blackburn. Uh, it was special because who we'd beaten, and it was special because we might we might not have been the best team technically at Blackburn, but I tell you what, we did have we had the best attitude and we had the best team spirit, and that's what got us uh, got us over the line in the in the end. So yeah, without without a doubt, it was um, it's right up there with uh, with the highlights. Yeah. Before we get to the move to your hometown club, talk to me about the summer that football came home. You've already mentioned that game against Holland but Euro 96 and your memories of that oh so close tournament oh what a what a what a time what a month it was still got fond memories we'll always have fond memories we had a we had so many leaders in that team I mean when you look at the captains we had whether it was Adams or Pierce Southgate Neville Ince myself Teddy I won't mention Gaza (laughs) (laughs) It was a brilliant tournament for so many reasons. Personally, because I hadn't scored for England for um, for almost two years leading up to that tournament, uh, which was it was 
it was a really rocky time for me because if I hadn't, and although I was scoring goals for Blackburn on a regular basis prior to the tournament, I hadn't scored for England for almost two years because, I say because, all the games that we played were friendlies because obviously mm. we'd qualified automatically for the uh, for the tournament with it being in our in our country, and that's how it uh, how it worked. But a month before the tournament started, Terry Venables, um, who was a genius at man management, sort of pulled me to one side and said to me, "Whatever happens in this month beforehand." And we were playing. We went over to the uh, to the Far East. You probably remember the infamous Hong Kong <laughs> incident, the dentist chair. And he pulled me before we went there and said, "Whatever happens in the next month, you will be my number one centre forward. You are going to start that first game for me in Euro '96." And I just thought, "Wow." For him to have that much trust and belief in me, uh, I, I couldn't, uh, there's no way I could let that guy down. And if I had, I probably wouldn't have played for England again. Because when you look at the other score, the goal scorers and forwards who were around then, I mean, we've mentioned, I mean, there's Andy Corley and Wright, Les Ferdinand, Collie Moore, Matt Letizier, probably missed loads out. And then we played the first game and against Switzerland in 96 and I got one. And then that was it, you know, as it happens with centre-forward so many times over your careers, if you hadn't scored and then eventually you get one, another and another. And I finished the tournament as top scorer. So, and then, but to get beaten against Germany in the semi-final when we came so close, I mean, Gazaz was a stud away from getting into that oh. when we were in um, gold, golden goal time. And then we got the penalties. And I mean, they were the 10 most perfect penalties I think I've ever seen. Uh, five Germany, five for us that were just unbelievable. Most of them in the top corner, and then we're down to the bare bones and to the we're down to the guys who don't really want to take them. And Gareth Southgate was uh, was one of those, and um, it just wasn't to be. It, it's it's a lottery when it goes to penalties, but I'm pretty sure that if we had a beat Germany in the semi, we would have won in the final. Oh, no question. Yeah, it was a good time for pizza adverts, but not for penalties. That's what happens when you miss penalties. You see, you get pizza adverts. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a lot of younger viewers who've got no idea what we're talking about. Exactly. But Corporal Griff, who's in Cool Droz, says, Alan, what's the story with that goal celebration that became so iconic? I often wondered if it was something you planned. Do you know what it is? No, I didn't. I would love to say, yes, I planned it. It, it just sort of happened, and the more people took the piss out of me excuse my language then the more I um, the more I thought you know what I'm just going to carry on doing it I wasn't one of these that could do a backflip or any flip because my knees or my back would, would, <laughs> wouldn't allow me to, uh, to to do that I'd have been out injured for a while so I did change it on one or two occasions, but for the main, it was it was just that one arm. Yeah, there are one or two videos out there of two arms. Uh, they do exist, yeah. kids. Uh, also, <laughs> Staff Sergeant Paul McNeil from Innsworth says, "Where does Chris Sutton rate as a strike partner?" Apparently, Paul is a massive magpie. Yeah, he was he was brilliant for me. I mean, he the way we the system we played at Blackburn when we didn't have the ball, he was the forward that sort of dropped into the uh, into the midfield a little bit deeper to try and make the extra man in midfield, and so he didn't mind doing that at all, which sort of left me up there and and tried to do some damage when we uh, when we got the ball. We had a great understanding on the pitch. We had a we had a system at uh, at Blackburn that was designed for a centre-forward to score goal. Two wingers, we had Ripley and Wilcox on either wing and their job was just to get the ball in the box and our job was to get on the end of it and myself and Sully did that. And it was brilliant for me, yeah. And the SAS, of course, very popular with our 
military audience as a nickname. Uh, Kelly Miller says, uh, Alan, I have recently built a bar in my back garden as a massive Newcastle and Alan Shearer fan. What one piece of memorabilia would you advise me to get for my new bar? There you, go. you weren't expecting that question today. What piece of memorabilia? Well, I uh, my favourite Newcastle shirt was the one I, when I signed in there. Uh, in 1996, with the old brown ale sign on the uh, on the front of it, so she needs to get one of those. And if she does, tell her to get it to me somehow, and I'll sign it and send it back to her. Wow, Kelly, you can't say fairer than that. What an incredible Thanks, gesture, Kelly. This one from Craig Lutton. He says, "Hello, Alan." Uh, he's at uh, RAF. Cranwell, and he's uh, part of the Royal Air Force uh, Music Department. And uh, Aaron Hughes was a stalwart for the Northern Ireland team. Any hilarious moments involving Hughesy from your time at Newcastle? Do you know what it is? There, there, there wasn't really, I mean, because Aaron was really, really quiet. He was very laid back. He was a great um, team member, a squad member of, uh, of ours. And he was one of these guys that every squad needs an Aaron Hughes because he could fill in anywhere and he wouldn't he wouldn't ever moan about it. He would just go and do what he uh, do what he had to had to do. He had a brilliant attitude, never missed training and hardly ever missed uh, missed any games. But he was he was really quiet and um, there's no real funny stories that I can remember anyway, not not with uh, not with Aaron. Um, well Craig's got he one here great, he was a great professional. Go on, he, tell us. he says when Northern Ireland went on tour to America and played Panama in twenty eighteen, Hughes he brought a guitar and was the post-match Snow Patrol entertainment. So I didn't know if you knew wow. he could do that. Well, he must have done something to improve, because when I retired in 2006, <laughs> he couldn't play the guitar. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Learn something new every day. And uh, also, Staff yeah. Sergeant Melanie Hall says, Hello, Alan. Out of all the strikers across the top flight currently, who do you think is worthy enough to take the Newcastle United number nine long term? Well, it's one thing me wanting them, but it's another thing Newcastle actually going out and being able to buy them or being able to attract someone like that. I mean, Harry Kane would be oh. uh, would be my pick. I'm uh, uh, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, he's a goal scorer. He's he's a killer. He's he, he's got the instinct in front of the goal. He's changed his game slightly, but it hasn't affected his goal scoring. He's dropping slightly deeper. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this. So if I, could, if I could have anyone at St. James's Park, then I'd have Harry Kane there. But I don't suspect that he would be interested in coming to Newcastle just yet. <laughs> you might be right. Uh, Jay, who is a massive uh, Blackburn fan here, would love to know if the rumours about your pre-match meals are true. And did you really have chicken and beans before every game? Well, you know what happened when I, I first went to uh, I first went to Blackburn, and I think my first pre-match meal, for whatever reason, I had chicken and beans, and I scored two on my debut, and I thought that's it. I'm having chicken and beans every single pre-match game, so that's why yeah, that's why I had it. And I scored my first game, and then I scored in my second game at uh, Edywood Park, and that's why it just uh, it just carried on. There was uh, a pie shop. Outside Ewood Park, that sold Shearer pies, which were chicken and beans. Yeah, you know that? I heard that story. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, and apparently they were really nice. I never had the chance to uh, to get one, but apparently they were nice. Well, according um, to Jay, yeah. uh, they weren't. You <laughs> 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 won't say the name of said bakery. No, I was going to say, yeah, don't name the shop. <laughs> uh, Corporal Jack Wellborn is in uh, Naples of NATO. Uh, says Alan, what is the strangest or funniest dressing room habit you've ever witnessed? From a teammate, habits go. I mean, this superstitious lot mm. of uh, of footballers. I mean, whether it was 
putting socks on the first, the left one first, and 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 then, or whether it was not putting your top on until you were um, halfway up the tunnel, or or whether it was. Uh, I mean, I don't know. There was there's there's so many from uh, from many different. I never. I wasn't the the. I say I wasn't the only thing that I didn't like doing before a game was I didn't like some. If you see. Some teams that have shooting practices um, from, I don't know, 20, 25 yards out. I didn't like doing that because I always felt if I was going to put one in the top corner in the, in the uh, when I was practising, the, the likelihood of that I wouldn't do it so half an hour later when it really mattered in a match. So I tended not to hit the net in uh, in the in the warm-ups. I just used to ping the, the, the ball around myself. But other than that, in the dressing room, I didn't really have any uh, have any myself. But I know the people with their socks and their shirts and stuff like that, yeah. Can the Sea Battery girls from 3rd RHA get a shout-out, please, Alan? They're currently deployed out in Estonia for six months and would love a shout-out. Hello, girls. Take care. Thank you. Uh, Corporal James Watson has said he's at Blandford Garrison. I was at your Alan Shearer Foundation check giving at the Marriott Hotel. I also met you at Branch's Restaurant. So how is the Alan Shearer Foundation doing? It's been a tough year for uh, for everyone, but I don't know whether you saw or not. I um, I gave my top and my boots away that I scored my 250th Premier League goal uh, against Manchester City. I, I put those up for a raffle. And I put it on um, on social media, and we did a couple of announcements on the BBC, which um, which helped sort of gain interest. And we raised 130 grand for the top on the boots, which was amazing. And 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 one guy from Newcastle who bought one ticket for a tenner actually won them, which was which was a great story. But we need uh, we need 250 grand every year to give wow. all the facilities away for free. We have a we have eight uh, nine bedrooms, uh, sensory rooms, music rooms, hydrotherapy pool, uh, cinema rooms, all, all of that, uh, and it's an it's an amazing place. But to give it away for free, we have to raise two hundred and fifty grand a year. So it's been a tough year, but we because of what we've done in previous years with the balls that we've had and the um, and the golf days. I mean, we had Lewis Capaldi come and perform for us last year, and I think for the last seven years we've had we had Mumford and Sons, we had Jess Glynn. Ronan Keating, Ed Sheeran. I mean, the list has been unbelievable. So, and we we tend to raise anything in between three and five hundred grand on a night, oh. which has just been amazing. So that's um, that sort of helped us get through this year. But every charity, I suppose, has has had a tough year. Like many households have had tough years. So, mm. uh, but it's it's gone it's gone as strong as uh, as it can be. And um, we're hoping for bigger and better things next year. We got a golf day this year, and then we'll have another ball in uh, in February, which which should get us back to, uh, to to earning some money for it again. But it's a very very special place. POMA Blake uh, is on a submarine. Says hi, Alan. Are you more proud of having a successful England career or being the top Premier League goalscorer? It's a tough question. That yeah, that's a really tough one. Um, can I say both? I mean, I said earlier, the, I, I always, I always dreamt of playing for my country. Never, ever did I think I would captain them, and then to captain your country. I said earlier, I don't, I would put that above uh, anything that that I achieved in in the game because um, it's that it's that special being top of the goal scoring charts with two hundred and sixty for. I don't know how many years it is now. Twenty seven or twenty eight years, I think I've been there now. It'll get broken one day. Um, I'm very, very proud of that as well, because I said to you earlier in one of your first questions, when I got that taste of putting the ball in the back of the net, then believe me, there's nothing better than that feeling. So 
yeah, I'm very happy. Yeah, I'm very happy with uh, with both of them, as you can imagine. Uh, David Cummings has asked a great question. He says, Alan, congratulations on being inducted into the Premier League Hall of Fame. If you could play with any striker in the Premier League currently, who would it be and why? I've got to think of it like a, from a um, from a centre forward and a goal scoring point of view. I said earlier about myself, Wrighty and Gary, trying to get into the same position to score goals. I think Harry Kane would be brilliant, you know, because because of his. When you look at the way he's his assists this season, I mean, him and him and Son have struck up this great relationship. So, and I'm sure that, that I could do the uh, do the same with him. So, I'm, I'm I would have no hesitation in saying Harry Kane. I'm interested in this. How much truth is there in the rumours about Real Madrid, Juventus, Barcelona and Manchester United signing you before you went to Newcastle? Barcelona, Bobby Robson was manager of, uh, of Barcelona and he inquired to, uh, to Blackburn when I was about to leave and Blackburn said he's not for sale at any price. So in the meantime, Bobby went out and signed Ronaldo, the first Ronaldo. So I don't think that was a. <laughs> I don't think right. that worked out too too badly. Yeah, it worked out all right for for Ronaldo and for Bobby and for Barcelona. So there was truth in Barcelona, but it was it was never my uh, my decision really. Man United, yeah, absolutely. I spoke to, uh, to Sir Alex. I actually met. Alex Ferguson and Kevin Keegan in the same house on the same day. I met Kevin Keegan in the morning and Sir Alex in the uh, in the afternoon. And at one point, I was going to go to Man United. I'd even chosen a house uh, wow. on Mir, uh, which I think was Graham Sunas's old house. But then I just thought, you know what? I just thought, then I, I'm going to go home. I want to go back to Newcastle. I want to spend the next 10 years playing for my club, the team I supported. And that was um, that was a decision. Real Madrid, no, never, not that I was aware of unless something happened behind my back, but I've never heard uh, I've never heard the Real Madrid. But the Barcelona and, um, and, uh, and Man United, yeah. You mentioned Sir Bobby Robson. So of all the managers you worked under, where does Sir Bobby rank for you? Right up there because he, he came into Newcastle when the club was on its knees. And I was on my knees as well because struggling for confidence, not enjoying my football, hadn't got on with the previous manager, Rude Hullett. So, he, so Bobby came in and he got everyone smiling. He took a club that were bottom of the Premier League and in his first home game, we managed to score eight goals and I got five of them. And then it just got better and better and better after that. So, And then from taking us from the bottom of the Premier League, to take us into the Champions League against Barca, against I don't know Juventus and Inter Milan and all these all these teams. So that sort of tells you how great Bobby was, and he saved my career, he saved my Newcastle career. So if it wasn't for him, then I perhaps might have had to have left Newcastle at that particular time. I mean, without swearing, can you describe hmm. your relationship with Rude Hullett? Then and now are very different. Then it was. Um, it was it well it wasn't a relationship I knew from day one that we weren't gonna uh, weren't gonna get on but now it's very different uh we have a laugh about what went on and he apologized um, all right <laughs> he said he said you know you know what us Dutch were like he said I was young I was arrogant I got one or two things wrong and he and he apologized but we get on we get on great now because we worked in in television together many times and um I, just, I actually said to him, if you were as nice now as you were then, then you might still be in the manager of Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, he, he, I remember he famously left you on the bench for uh, a game against Sunderland, which 
Sunderland won. Yeah. Um, of course, you don't need me to remind you of that, but a uh, horrible night, wet, and you had to watch well, it. If, the if, yeah, if uh, if Newcastle had won that game, then I would have probably had to have left Newcastle. Yeah. But I'm not going to say thankfully, because I'd never say thankfully was Sunderland beat Newcastle, but Sunderland beat us that night, and then Rude was gone the next day. I think he resigned the next day or sacked one of the two. This is a nice question. John in Northern Ireland says, I have two boys playing a lot of football. How do you train when you were a footballer? What was it that you were taught to concentrate on as a teenager? You were a very physical player. So what did you concentrate on, asks John. I, I had a, a youth team manager at, um, at Southampton. He was a Geordie, actually, a guy called Dave Merrington, who was tough as old boots. I mean, he, he was really strict with us. I mean, he gave me the advice that to use my right foot and practice with my right foot and practice more with my right foot, not so much with my left foot, and to make my right foot unstoppable. Um, so he said, if anyone was trying to get to stop you, then make sure that they can't stop that right foot. Whereas I think other coaches might have said, you know, yeah, you're going to have to work on that left side a little bit uh, more than you, you should do. But his advice was the other way. Well, to make make sure your right foot was was pretty unstoppable. And um, yeah, my right foot was was pretty decent. And I always felt confident that I could could get my shot away or my cross away or or finish or whatever it whatever it was. That not to mean that I didn't work on my left foot at all because I I, I did and got a few with it but um the the 75% of my my training would have been with my uh, with my right peg that's very interesting. I, I keep telling my nephews, make sure you can use your left because then you've got more chance of getting in the team. Just ignore everything I've said boys. Alan knows, <laughs> Alan knows a great deal more than me. Well, that, that worked for me. That might not work for everyone else. <laughs> yeah, all right. But it, it really worked for you. Uh, <laughs> Corporal Richard Duffy, RAF Bryce Norton, says, Hi, Alan. Uh, out of Hi, Alan St. Maximan and Hatim Ben Arthur, which one would you want in your team? Did you actually play with anyone with the same level of flair during your career? And I know for a fact that you did. Oh, yeah. I mean, David Genoa at, uh, at Newcastle was, I mean, he had... He was unplayable on his uh, on his day. Perhaps didn't put as many crosses in as he uh, as he should have. But uh, <laughs> us forwards will always uh, always complain. I don't know. I mean, I probably San Maximan. He he's been huge for Newcastle and coming back in the last sort of month or so. And it's no surprise that the results have um, have improved for him being back in the team because what he does is and his numbers are not great in terms of assists or goals. He perhaps could and and should do better in that department with the ability that he has. But what he does when he's in the team at Newcastle, he, he attracts three or four players towards him, which then frees up the other players in the Newcastle Newcastle team. So it would, it would be um, Sam Maximum, definitely. Yeah, good answer. And uh, less sort of off the field stuff to worry about as well. <laughs> what, what was the highlight of your playing time at Newcastle? Um, probably... Breaking the great Jackie Milburn's record that stood for so many years. I mean, he was my he was my dad's hero at Newcastle, and he's iconic. And that that afternoon that I broke the record at the Gallagher End, where I used to stand as a kid myself, it was it was. I mean, if I could have bottled that feeling that I had, it was one of those moments where the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. I mean, they, they were they were up for. 15 or 20 minutes after after I scored and the atmosphere was just phenomenal. Um, so probably that. I mean, I had some disappointing times as well. I mean, mm. but I, I just think it, it shows how good our fans are. And I mean, we, we, it was pretty embarrassing really because we, we got to two FA Cup finals, 99 
98 and 99 um, and got beaten in both of them. And on both occasions, we had um, we had a parade, which was I mean it would never happen at any in any other any other city that we get cheered uh, for being beaten in the cup. And we had literally hundreds of thousands from the the Gosford Park Hotel to the Civic Centre. There were hundreds of thousands lining the streets to say, "Well done." Where where else would that happen other than other than Newcastle? Just because they've been starved of success but the, the yeah that feeling that i had when uh, when i scored that goal to beat jackie milburn yeah. was was blooming very very special yeah i hoped we'd get through the whole thing without you reminding me about 1998 i uh, was a very sad young <laughs> young boy in the old trafford in that semi-final uh, being a sheffield united fan when you scored literally right in oh front sorry of my face. sorry <laughs> you know and i thought it had been saved as well you managed to just poke it over the line like you say you can remember yeah, every goal so you can picture that one yeah I remember it. I remember it well. I remember the cross coming in, getting above the defender and the keeper saving it and me reacting uh, that just that little bit quicker than anyone else. And I remember celebrating in front of the fans stop, as, as well. I mean, that, that, it was rocking. Oh. I don't think Old Trafford's been as, as, as loud and as noisy as that as it was that day when, when the Geordies got in there. So I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dreadful, dreadful day. A.B. King, HMS Collingwood, massive fan of yours. Alan loved your SAS days with Chris Sutton, but a bit more recent. Who would be the first name on your team sheet between Frank Lampard or Stephen Gerrard if you could only pick one? Probably, probably I don't know. I'd, pro- I'd probably say Frank, only because of the number of goals that he scored. As I said it earlier, didn't I? That mm. I, I feel guilty calling him a midfielder with his goal-scoring record. What he won to, uh, at Chelsea as well in terms of Premier League. So, yeah, probably Frank. But if you gave me any one of those, then I wouldn't complain. Yeah, absolutely. Now, tell me about your decision to retire from international football when many said you still would have been picked for your nation regularly? Yeah, I had uh, I had three serious injuries in my career that kept me out for six or seven months at a time each. I knew my body more than anyone and I knew that I was slowing down and I knew that I'd lost half a yard of pace and I knew to keep up the standard that I had to to keep playing for Newcastle, then one had to give and of course that, that couldn't be Newcastle so that had to be, that had to be England. I always had a saying that I always get off the stage whilst people are shouting for more rather than people telling you to get off. I couldn't continue both jobs. Because I got another six years playing at the highest level, it was it was the right decision. Yeah, you always said that fans don't boo bad opposition players. No, they don't. I mean, I always took that as a sign of respect when I went to opposition grounds. Yeah, the, the opposing fans don't boo bad players, do they? They just mm. boo the players that they see as a see as a danger. So I took it as a I took it as a compliment wherever I went, I got booed in the away grounds. <laughs> yeah, I remember you saying that because I remember when I was a lad playing, I, I never got booed at an opposition ground. So I was <laughs> very disappointed. Tough, tough lesson to oh, learn. Well. <laughs> uh, who were your really good friends in football? I had uh, a great friend still with uh, with Rob Lee at, uh, at Newcastle. Um, as soon as I come into Newcastle, I knew that we were going to get on, uh, going to get on very well. I still keep in touch with, um, obviously, with with Les in Newcastle, Matt Letizia at Southampton, Mike Mule at Blackburn, Tim Flowers at uh, at Blackburn. Probably Rob Lee was uh, was my best pal there. 
Chris Conway from sunny Scotland, uh, first of all, says congratulations on being the joint first inductee into the Hall of Fame. Who was the toughest defender you ever faced? Tony Adams. He used to kick me. I used to kick him and cut eye and broken nose and cut lip stitches. But we always, at the end of it, we always used to uh, shake hands. He was a great captain. He was a brilliant leader. I mean, that back four that Arsenal had with him, Bold, Dixon, Winterburn, and then David Seaman behind him as the keeper. There weren't many better than uh, better than that. I mean, as a defender then, you could have a free hit, couldn't you? You were allowed one bad tackle before you got a yellow card. Tony definitely gave me his, uh, his fair share, but we, we had some great battles. But we always shook hands at the end of it. And yeah, he was, he was the best defender. How much do you enjoy now working in the media? I mean, it never replicates the buzz of, of walking out in front of 70,000 or 80,000, but I don't suspect anything does. Um, but it's, mm. it's probably the second best. I mean, to get paid to play football um, and now to sit on television and talk about it and give my opinions, then, uh, then I'm a, I'm, I'm a really lucky lad. I was really lucky because it's really tough when you retire from football or when you finish, you have to stop playing because where do you get the buzz from? Where do you get that that kick from? So I sort of left one dressing room and went into another one with Alan Hansen, Gary Lineker, sort of Lee Dixon, now uh, Wrighty or whoever, whoever it, it may be. So that's sort of filled the void a, a, a little bit, but it's it's tough when you retire. But we have a good team spirit in what we've got now as well at the BBC. Yeah, you can talk to Gary Lineker about this experience. He was the first one that we had on uh, on one of these. He was great. All right. How yeah, do, nice you, do you view the media now? You know, because when you were a player, compared with what you now know, you're in that unique position where you've been in both sides. Yeah, you definitely view it differently. I mean, you don't mm. you don't really understand it when you sort of tunnel vision when you're when you're a player and it's you and your team that 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 matters most not until I finished anyway until you get involved in it and you see all the technicalities and everything that has to go with it but of course it's it's changed a lot from when I uh, when I started TV work in 2005 six to what it is now I mean the, the research and the work that you have to do now particularly going into major tournaments um, when you've got to do the research on players that you might not have uh, you might not have heard of it's a little bit more difficult now and it's it's sort of gone up a notch or two because there's that many tv channels now that you have to stay on on your best game and your best mm-hmm. behavior and you have to you have to be knowledgeable and do all your research wo2 peter donahue says hello alan as someone who can be heard at the very top of english football what are your thoughts on how grassroots football can be improved to ensure that the future of English football is at its highest level? As a youth football coach, positive coaching goes a long way, but there seems to be restricted opportunities when moving between youth and men's football. Can I have your top tip that I can offer my team at seven? I mean, I was never restricted from playing in the older age groups at all. And I think that certainly helped me. I mean, when I was... I think when I was 12, I was playing in the under-14s or under-15s. And I always used to think that that was, that was a great thing for me when I was in the youth teams. I was always playing against the, uh, against the first team. And I thought, as an experience, that was, that was great. I mean, I, go, I drive around here in, in Newcastle and I still see, obviously not for the past 12 or 14 months because of the pandemic, but before that, I still see the thirst and the hunger and the demand for kids football or for grassroots uh, football. But I just, I would love to see players being able, allowed just to go and play. The difference between the parents 
in football and the parents in rugby. Because my son used to do a bit of rugby and football. I mean, the difference in the attitudes in the parents is incredible. The shouting and the screaming that the parents do in football is so much more than it is in, in rugby. And the parents, were, I find, so much more respectful in terms of what they say or what they do to the referee or what they even say to their, to their kids on the, on the touchline. So for me, I would, just go and, I would just go and let kids play. Football is serious enough when you get to 16 or 17. Yes, you can do the basics and you can teach the basics, but I think it, as a seven or eight-year-old, I just wanted to go out and play. There's no sort of structure. There's no none of that. So that that would that would be me to to let the kids just enjoy it and play football, which is what they should be able to do, and to make your stronger foot even better. There you go. Top tips. Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Alan, did you excel in any other sports? I love golf. Now um, I got into golf when I uh, when I went down to Southampton. I mean, you had you had three or four choices as a footballer back then, back in the uh, in the mid eighties. You either played pool, you either went to the bookies, or you went to the pub. And thankfully, I got onto the golf course. Uh, and from then on, I've played golf, and I love golf. I would love to be uh, I would love to be better at it. I find it such <laughs> a frustrating sport, but I do uh, but I do love it. But it was always uh, it was always football with me. Kyle in Newcastle says, uh, "When did you know it was time?" to hang up your boots? Well, I was going to retire the year before I did and Graham Souness convinced me to have one more year. He said to me, you might get the record, Jackie Milburn's record. You, I wouldn't want you playing as many games. I would just want you to be my eyes and ears in the dressing room and help me out as a, as a manager. And I thought, yeah, I, I, that quite appeals to me because I knew I'd lost. Um, I was on my last legs. Um, and as I said earlier, I just wanted to get, I wanted to get out at the top where people were shouting for more. So I thought, yeah, I'll do that for one more year. I ended up playing the vast majority of, of the games because of injuries and and him not being able to get um, to get some players in. Um, but it turned out to be uh, to be a, a, a great season because I got the record. But it, I knew how, your, your your body tells you. I, I wanted to get into positions, but my body wasn't allowing me to to get there. And I knew then that that was the time. I've been really really lucky that I played all my career at the highest level. So I didn't want to go go down to um, go down any divisions, um, and I couldn't anyway because I, I got an injury five or six games before the end of that season, which I was retiring anyway. So it cut it short by five or six games. So I knew I knew for that whole season that it was time to pack in at the end of the season. Uh, Harrison, communications apprentice at the Ministry of Defence, <clears throat> says uh, you are a footballing legend, Alan. But who do you think currently is the brightest young talent in football? Phil Forden, I think, is I mean, is is unbelievable. I think he's been managed superbly well uh, with Pep. He sort of held him back and held him back, but he's one of the first names on the team sheet for me now. In that uh, in that Man City uh, in that Man City team, he's got so much ability. His technique, uh, low centre of gravity. He's learning and getting better uh, better all the time. And I think he can be an absolute superstar. I think Mason Greenwood at uh, at Man United as well. I think he could be a great goal scorer. Given uh, given time, he's had a tougher season than mm. he perhaps perhaps would have wanted, but that, the ability is there without a doubt. Well, while we're talking about youngsters, particularly English ones, Mac and Staffordshire says, uh, "How do you think England are going to get on at this year's Euros?" I think for the first time there'll be a bit of pressure on this England team and Gareth Southgate because there haven't been free hits. There's never free hit when you're manager or when you're playing for England, but there hasn't been the expectation there. 
because I mean I know we got to a semi-final in the last World Cup in Russia um, but no one really expected us to to, to, to go on and, and get there but now because of the talent and the pool of players that Gareth has I mean for so long Gareth was trying to put players in different positions to try and fill them now when you look at the look at our team particularly going forward then we've got some really talented footballers if we can get on a roll and get the crowd behind us and you never know because of the games that England have got at Wembley certainly in the first phase and then again semi-final and finals I think are also at Wembley you just never know and I think if they get on a roll and we, we talked about earlier that what happened to us in, in Euro 96 then it become very difficult to stop so I would have some expectations of England this, this summer yeah oh, that's exciting Warrant Officer Steph Wright DMS Whittington says Alan what was the best goal you ever scored? Probably my, I would say personally, the volley I scored for Newcastle against Everton. I don't even know why I hit it. It just come down in the air. Shola had won their header, I think it was, and it come down, and I just, and, and I just, it was one of those where I just, it was just instinctive that, and ninety nine times out of a hundred, that ball sort of ends up in the Gallagher end. It was one of those where I just knew I, I could hear the connection. I felt the connection. It was just perfect, and I knew as soon as I hit it, the keeper was uh, the keeper wasn't wasn't stopping. It was like one of those slow motion things where I knew it was just going in, going in a top corner. So it was probably that Everton goal, yeah. Yeah, it's a brilliant strike. And uh, can you do a shout yeah. out for the chefs in Estonia, Alan? Please. Oh, chefs in Estonia. I hope you're well. Keep up the good work. Corporal James Watson at Blanford Garrison says, my mother was your sports masseuse when you were playing for England, Alan. All uh, right, OK. He's asked I won't a mass- blame her for all the injuries that I've got then. <laughs> He's asked a massive question, which is a really big one right as we're finishing. But he says, do you think VAR is beneficial for football? Good luck. I think it, VAR will be and would have been beneficial for football if they had run it the way they told us they were going to run it. They told us they wouldn't re-referee the game. They have. They told us it would be maximum benefit, minimum minimum intervention. That is not what happened. They told us it was going to be for the blatantly obvious howlers, and that's not the case. So if, if they were to apply all of those things that they've said, then it could be successful. But at the minute, it hasn't it hasn't been run correctly and it's it's well it's just been a farce basically yeah i mean it was run i think quite successfully in the world cup in russia but of course it's the people yeah. behind it and how they implement it and you, you just summed it up perfectly there this is a great one from uh, corporal karen walsh hello karen in uh, cyprus she says uh, alan thank you so much for giving up your time uh, what is the proudest moment of your career so that's i suppose different to the, the greatest achievement it would have been it would have been walking out of Wembley with the armband as uh, as captain. I mean, and and playing for my club Newcastle. I mean, I always get this stick I know off the of Man United fans and off <laughs> off of the fans that I would have won a lot more trophies than if I'd have gone to Man United. Of course, I would have. I understand that and get that. But I had ten unbelievable years at my club, scoring goals with a number nine shirt on at the Gallagher end, the terrace that I stood on, the team that I supported. I've got a statue outside the ground. I've got a foundation that supports profoundly disabled people. If I had the same decision to make again to go to Newcastle, I would make the same because it was it was the best decision that I could have made. So that was that was incredibly proud. But I think, yeah, walking out was at Wembley in front of 80 or 90,000 people with the armband on. You can't beat that. Finally, do you have a message for all your fans watching and listening across the armed forces world right now? 
I'll just say thanks very much for everything you guys do. I mean, it seems a bit weird and probably wrong that I keep hearing and some of the messages that off who on some of the questions tonight that call me a legend. You guys out there that um, that represent us and represent our country are the real legend. So from from me, it's my turn to say thank you to to all of you and keep up the great work. And it's it's so much appreciated everything that you guys do. Well said, Alan Shearer. I didn't get stung by a wasp. Your Wi-Fi made it. We did it. We did it, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to everyone. I really appreciate all your kind messages. Thank you. Once upon a time, on the pitch. On the pitch.